Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably. That's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello, I'm Luke Warren, host of the Green Market Podcast a show from the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Centre and Cedargold that focuses on market environmentalism, ESG and impact investing and the application of the Austrian School of Economics in tackling climate change and achieving our environmental ambitions. The UK finds itself at an unprecedented crossroads. The economic fallout from COVID-19 provides an opportunity for a green recovery. Our departure from the European Union not only symbolises a new political age for Britain, but also the chance to determine our own environmental laws and ambitions. As president of the G7 and host of COP26 this year, the UK now has the opportunity to become a global leader in, in environmental affairs. However, significant challenges remain, such as how best to achieve net zero by 2050, ensure the recovery from COVID doesn't stifle businesses and take full advantage of the environmental opportunities of Brexit. This week's episode focuses on the challenges and opportunities the UK faces in achieving its environmental ambitions and the market-based policies that may help in doing so. Today, I am joined by Andrew Lemming and Eamon Ives. Andrew Lemming is a researcher on environment and energy policies at BrightBlue, where he has written Towards Green Export Finance, investigating the views of UK exporting firms towards UKEF. Before that, he served as a research assistant to US-based political scientists. Eamon Ives is a senior researcher at the Centre for Policy Studies, specialising in energy and environment policy. His research focuses on how market-based solutions can mitigate environmental challenges, such as climate change, air pollution and conservation. Thank you both for joining me here today. I'd like to start by discussing the largest political change the UK has had in our generation, Brexit. A fundamental reason for our departure from the EU was the idea of reclaiming sovereignty, whether that be over trade deals we negotiate or the laws we implement. The House of Commons Environmental Audit Committee previously determined that about 80% of the UK's environmental rules derive from EU directives. So what opportunities and challenges does Brexit present for our envi environmental laws and regulatory powers? Uh, perhaps, Eamon, you would like to start. Um, I think it's a really interesting um, topic to be talking about and is one that I think even um, you know people who wanted the UK to remain in the UK, uh, in the European Union um, and you know, voted to remain and, and then kind of campaigned thereafter, um, a lot of them will probably concede that actually um, matters on the environment and energy policy um, is kind of an area where Brexit does present some quite attractive opportunities. Um, so when I used to work for the think tank which Andrew works for now. Um, we published a big paper on um, what the UK could do in terms of agricultural policy, um, you know, getting rid of the common agricultural policy, replacing it with a system which, um, you know, incentivizes more uh, better environmental stewardship from farmers and land managers. Um, so I think that that could be, you know, really quite radically 
um, transformative for Britain's biodiversity um, and also things like agricultural productivity. Um, so yeah, I think that I mean we could talk about lots of different other ones, and I and I you know keen to to leave some um, for Andrew to talk about himself. But uh, yeah, I think there's there are a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, risks as well, definitely. And, and um, there's always going to kind of be that pressure to to make sure that um, you know we're not backsliding um, anywhere too dramatically um, in terms of environmental regulations and things like that. But but yeah, I think um, this is certainly one area where the UK can definitely diverge and do a lot better than what um, you know the status quo was uh, in Europe and and sort of even in the few years since we've left, I think we've seen some quite uh, dispiriting trends in in you know regulations of new foodstuffs and, and genetic editing and, and things like that so so yeah i think it is an, an area where even if you know you maybe you want the uk to remain in the european union um it's something which uh you know we should be um, looking to improve on all the time and andrew yeah so i i agree with him in that you know obviously anytime you you remove yourself from a large regulated system you're going to find ways to innovate beyond uh, in certain areas. I mean, I think the concern um, now is which areas are going to see improvement and which aren't, because the government's record thus far uh, on various aspects of green industrial policy and reaching net zero have deviated significantly, right? We see a divergence. So the most recent instances in which the UK is saying, we're going to transform our transport system. We're going to trans. We're going to transform our energy system. We're going to transform our homes. We want to be innovative and go beyond. Um, it falls short of the rhetoric to some extent. I mean, some studies are starting to show the Greener UK analysis that came out a few days ago is saying that, well, yeah, there's been improvement in some areas. Some have remained the same. And then on air quality, chemicals, nature, waste and resources, we're regressing. Um, so in, with the environment bill, the, U, the UK potentially has an opportunity to correct course somewhat on some of these issues that are being identified, um, but it remains to be seen. And in general, I think that one has to be careful uh, not to get too caught up in the rhetoric that Brexit is this massive opportunity for the UK and actually look at the substance of the policy details to see where the opportunities are being seized, if at all. Um, a number of EU countries still fail to properly implement the regulations set out by the EU. So, for example, 400,000 premature deaths through air pollution um, were reported in a 2018 joint report on air quality. So what kind of uh, opportunities does Brexit present for our regulatory powers, especially in terms of an independent regulatory authority? Um, Eamon? Yeah, that's a, a great um, statistic to throw out there. I think air pollution certainly is one of those areas where, um, you know, we've had a lot of chatter about it. And I remember when Michael Gove was Environment Secretary, it was some, something which he was quite clearly keen to um, take the lead on. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's been one of those areas where the UK has failed to, you know, abide by some of the standards which it was um, meant to when it was a member of the European Union, and it and it's still it's kind of falling short. And and I think it's one of those environmental problems that really does strike home with a lot of people. You know, regardless of who you are, I think everyone can appreciate that. You know, you don't want polluted air. Um, you know, you don't want children breathing it in their schools and things like that. Um, in terms of things that we can do. Um, 
you know, now that we're outside of the European Union, I think um, I, I, I don't know if there's kind of huge areas for us to kind of go above and beyond. I mean, I guess we can set new and more rigorous targets, but you know, if we weren't meeting the ones that we we had anyway as members of the EU, I think, um, yeah, I think I'd be a little bit more cautious to to think that okay, we're out, we're out of the transition period. Suddenly, we're going to get brilliant clean air quality. You know, fundamentally, you need to um, tackle the sources that are causing that, and so principally transport, but other other things in terms of like agriculture and power generation. Um, so I think that's a bit more of a difficult one, and, and there's not necessarily that kind of clear um policy win that that we can get from coming out of the eu um and and so yeah i think it, it's down to other other powers that the government has at its disposal to to better regulate traffic and and stimulate the uptake of zero emission vehicles um so yeah i'm not, I'm not sure there's as i say kind of necessarily going to be that one one bound and we're kind of free and, and we can rid ourselves of this problem i think it's going to be a bit more of an incremental um journey towards much cleaner air which we obviously need to do and Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I would I would largely agree with what Eamon's saying on that. It's um, it's not, you know, necessarily the case that there is sort of one blanket area where the UK could improve. But I think in general, kind of picking up on some of the, you know, kind of the free market themes of the discussion we're having, I mean, this is a significant kind of market failure to some extent. Right. This is an example of an externality which is taken out of account in most understandings of industrial systems. It's there, but only to a certain extent. Um, and the the priorities and the standards that we have uh, have to vary from industry to industry as well. So while the UK can set, you know, standards for for transport and other other areas of society, there are always going to be hard to abate sectors that require specific action and attention. And, you know, uh, the government has suggested ways to deal with that, but more remains to be seen, essentially. So, of course, um, one report by the Institute of Economic Affairs reported that um, the EU policy framework has largely been in disarray um, in their report, breaking up is hard to do. Um, and that's in, set, in, in regards to setting overall targets while simultaneously imposing detailed plans for individual sectors, which has kind of made a disjoined approach. Um, but I'd like to turn to free trade and our environmental objectives. Ever since um, Brexit, Liz Truss and her team have really been pushing out the uh, number of free trade deals we've got with other nations. But what opportunities does Brexit present in regards to our environmental objectives, Eamon? Um, yeah, I think that this is an area which, um, you know, I happen to have been researching quite a lot lately, and, and we will shortly have a report coming out on that. So do please uh, keep your eyes peeled for that in the next few weeks, at least, hopefully, if we get it out on time. Um, but yeah, I think, again, this is kind of an area where there is, um, you know, real opportunity for the UK to kind of do better and, and, um, and yeah, kind of lead a new global um, initiatives and, and things like that to, to improve the environment through our trade policy. I mean, I think very often you'll kind of get those people on the on the left of politics, but I suppose elsewhere as well, who who sort of see trade and the globalized economic systems inherently um, damaging for the environment. However, I think um, you know people like us from sort of the right of politics and sort of free market um, are going to sort of push back on that. And I think there's a lot of good evidence to to back ourselves up on that. Um, there's certainly a lot that the UK could do. Um, I think we recently had the 
board of trade paper come out and, and that recommended the UK joins um, this initiative called ACT, um, which I think could be could be potentially very interesting. Um, and and the UK being a being the huge economy that it is would add a lot of kind of leverage and weight to that to that initiative, which um, among other things seeks to you know liberalise tariffs and non-tariff barriers um, for environmental goods and services, um, seeks to phase out subsidies and and other other things in sort of countries domestic policies um which are not only damaging to trade but also to um to the environment so i guess agricultural subsidies subsidies, those kinds of things um so yeah i think this is certainly an area where i'm i'm a bit more optimistic that the uk could um really kind of blaze a trail and, and particularly with its g7 presidency and, and the cop uh coming up in november um to great forum to um to really kind of yeah spearhead good initiatives and Andrew? Yeah, so I would agree with Eamon on, on the fact that trade does present an opportunity for, for the UK moving forward beyond Brexit. I mean, at Bright Blue, we're currently working on a study of UK export finance and how to green ECAs more broadly. Um, and thus far, you know, UKF has not taken advantage of the power that it has in international markets to shape environmental outcomes on, on the ground in various countries. Um, so, you know, export finance moving forward from the UK should take into account things such as uh, sustainability linked assets, that is integrating ESG ratings into loans and guarantees that it gives to overseas um, buyers of UK Um, exports. This can be done through its development vehicles as well, for instance. I'd be quite interested to talk about the uh, UKF there a little bit, just a little bit more. So I think Andrew might be able to talk a little bit more about this um, with sort of the work you've done on UKF um, thus far. Um, but I think something we obviously saw last year um, was the the pledge to kind of phase out um, direct uh, support for fossil fuel projects and things like that. And um, I think they closed consultation earlier this year. Um, I think that's kind of an example of the UK really um, getting to grips with exactly what it does and, and sort of how it can better utilize its its subsidies and what it's financing and and you know to get out of subsidizing these uh, fossil fuel projects and you know sort of a believer in free markets like me I, I really kind of don't see the rationale and justification for UKEF at all um maybe Andrew will disagree with me a little bit on there but um but yeah I think that's um that's kind of a real positive move and, and hopefully it's kind of emblematic of, of things to come yeah, so I mean, I would obviously push back on. Um, I mean, maybe as someone researching export credit agencies, I would, you know, believe want to believe that they should have a, a role to play. Um, but I mean, UK export finance does serve an important purpose in in allowing Britain to access international markets. I mean, the investment insurance that it provides, the lending that it provides, and often in many cases will provide coverage where the private market is unable to do so. Um, And in challenging circumstances where the risks of uh, engaging in business would be too high. Now, with that said, its phase out of fossil fuels is dependent upon the public consultation, as even mentioned. Um, the key question moving forward for the government is to what extent can they move beyond what are in sort of asset management terms, exclusionary policies. That is, we're not going to fund this X, Y, or Z, you know, related to 
fossil fuel production and move to impact generating investments. That is, get beyond simply borrowing high emitting assets from developing and actually start thinking really about how to utilize the finance to create climate outcomes. Um, this, I would say that I would, I'm, I'm not too optimistic about how the government will move on this. Personally, I think that they're very concerned, obviously, about the impact on business of a full phase out and an aggressive move toward Paris alignment at UKEF. Um, undoubtedly, there would be many projects which would not qualify uh, for any UK financing or insurance if you implement some of the strictest standards uh, possible. On, on these questions. There are reasons why they exclude, say, scope three emissions from their analysis, because the greenhouse gas emissions across the supply chains and related to the projects themselves are simply too great to, to allow under that, under that sort of uh, regime. Um, but I do think that the, the phase out is a really important policy and a really important example of the UK taking the lead on climate change, especially moving forward to the COP. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's going to, to really create the kind of transformation within export credit agencies that's needed more broadly to kind of reach net zero and, and Paris alignment. Uh, would you like to uh, rebut that, Eamon? Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think the government's got any responsibility to be subsidising firms to to um, to export. You know, I think we've got capital markets to do that already. And if banks don't want to take a risk on it, then I think that's their sort of um, prerogative. And 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 yeah, so I'm I'm pretty cool on on the idea of export credit agencies. I don't deny they could probably be good in some instances. I just don't see it as a as a thing that government should be doing necessarily. I mean. We can have a debate about what the limits of, you know, sort of government intervention in markets should be. I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate debate to have, but I don't think there's any denying the fact that government should have a role, that the state should play a role in regulating markets and certain outcomes. I mean, you know, if UK companies are have capital and are looking to access certain markets and the risk to their business is high, without government backing, without the state's imprimatur, uh, they might completely collapse. The economic effects throughout society would be considerable. And I honestly think the idea that we shouldn't have export credit agencies such as UKEF is incompatible with the idea that we should be a trading global nation. I mean, you have to have the institutions to guide that uh, development of international markets or else it's chaos. Thank you. Um, I'd like to just move on to the COVID-19 pandemic and how the issue of environmentalism has arguably lost some traction as governments sought to tackle the human and economic cost of COVID-19 and the lockdown policies. There's now an opportunity to grow back green, which this government is keenly aware of. For example, a £1 billion programme has already been announced to make public buildings greener, including schools and hospitals, and will be used to improve energy efficiency and low carbon heat upgrades. How does our recovery mark a change in the government's approach to tackling environmental challenges? And what market solutions should be considered in our green recovery? Eamon, would you like to start? Certainly, yeah. I think um, obviously we've kind of seen all of these stimulus packages coming out from around the world and, and so ones yet to be announced. Um, obviously, sort of Biden and the USA, gargantuan one and, and the EU likewise and um, 
and yeah, some people have criticised the the UK's for kind of not earmarking quite enough um, as they see it for um, environmental projects. Um, I think I don't know. I, I kind of split down two two lines on this. I think for on the one hand, yes, it's good to be seeing kind of this emphasis being placed on the environment, but it seems to me like quite a lot of the announcements are just kind of more pockets and pools and pots of money for various disparate things. Um, to me, that's kind of not the best and most ideal way to, to have a kind of coherent and linked up, um, you know, philosophy almost for decarbonisation. Um, and I kind of worry about exactly how effective all that money is going to be. Um, you know, no doubt it will kind of, it will have an effect at the margin, but whether that's kind of the absolute best, um, you know, best place to be putting our money in, in certain projects, I'm kind of slightly dubious, I guess, of the idea that um, kind of civil servants can, can dictate that from the centre. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll see. I mean, look at the Green Homes Grant, um, and that's been plagued by, by lots of different problems and, and uptakes definitely not been as much as the government would want. And, and some people might say that um, that's more down to government rather than people necessarily. Um, but I still think it kind of points to a flaw in the idea that kind of government can just announce all this money and, um, you know, suddenly, you know, everyone adopts it and, and we get all these great investments coming through. Um, there are certainly some things which I think it could be um, doing. And I'm, I'm quite glad that we had the budget, the, the super deduction, as they call it, um, in what otherwise was a pretty bad budget as far as I'm concerned. Um, but if that can allow us to, to really be upgrading capital investment in machinery and things like that and allowing um, businesses to invest in cleaner capital, then I think that that could be potentially um, quite transformative. Um, so things like that, I think, are good and kind of broad, um, comprehensive tax changes in, in the sense that the super deductive might be. Um, I think for me, at least, that's kind of the, the sorts of policy making, policy change that I like to see as opposed to, yeah, these kind of disparate and, and um, you know, pots of, of funding that invariably, I think, kind of just get wasted and swallowed up and, and aren't necessarily the best way for, to spend money on stuff like this. There's certainly a compelling argument to make about the unintended consequences of all of these grants and schemes. But Andrew, I'd like to know your thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that the UK without a coherent and comprehensive strategy for how it plans to transform its economy does run the risk of creating massive waste and inefficiencies and essentially tinkering around the margins. Um, I feel like after a year of hearing about how we'd have a green recovery from COVID that there should have been a, a more coherent plan in place and the UK should have provided leadership on climate in an area where uh, it had an opportunity to do so, which is using the fiscal uh, and, and monetary powers of the state uh, in order to drive that transition forward. For instance, the corporate tax breaks that were given, well, they're given to all, um, you know, there are criteria, obviously, but there are no specific criteria related to environmental sustainability whatsoever. And part of the, part of the approach that we have to take to transforming markets will involve disincentivizing certain types of production, disincentivizing certain types of emissions, and ensuring that essentially the polluter pays for, for what's, what's their fair share of the problem. Um, so I think it was a missed opportunity in that respect. And thus far, what we're seeing is, um, is a dis like 
Amy was saying, a very disparate, scattered strategy. And then we see examples, very clear examples of regression. The fuel duty, for instance, the Green Homes Grant. Um, these are examples where, uh, and today the Electric Vehicles Grant. I mean, so you see the government regressing on these small things while at the same time putting out large amounts of money to various places without, without a coherent plan. So I do think it's a, it's a risk that the UK runs. In 2019, the UK government and devolved administrations committed to net zero target as recommended by the Climate Change Committee. As host of COP26, the path we take to achieve net zero will influence the decision makers of other nations. What market orientated policies should the UK consider adopting in order to achieve net zero? Uh, Andrew, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I honestly would probably disagree pretty vehemently with Eamon on, on the role of the market in this question. I, I do think climate change represents a serious market failure and that the goods that have to be created in order to address it are essentially public goods, which fall within the province of the state. When we talk about things such as infrastructure, when we talk about things such as retrofitting, the government has a vital role to play in this. Now, where there are market solutions potentially are in the areas of finance, mostly, I would say, in the sense that you can drive transition with the types of finance and where it's being directed. But there again, you have government playing a central role in shaping the types of investment that are provided and setting standards and setting the framework and the philosophical structure, right, that encourages investment to be channeled in those directions. And Eamon? Yeah, so I, I, I don't disagree that, you know, I think it's totally, totally a market failure. You know, it's probably the biggest collective action problem ever known to mankind. Um, and, and you know we will we will need kind of government intervention to um, overcome it until at least until the point where you know it's always the best idea is to go for the green option, um, which sadly isn't the case at the moment. You know fossil fuel electricity and um, heating and transport fuels um, invariably still are more attractive solutions, and that will change, but it's not going to change quickly enough. Hence why we need um, some forms of government intervention, but they can take lots of different um, different approaches, you know, we could have incredibly top-down, state-planned, uh, you know, policies and things like that, or we could, you know, try and harness market mechanisms. Um, so it's things like, um, I think Andrew mentioned very briefly before, um, talking about the Pluto Pays principle. Well, I think that's absolutely something the government should be looking to um, sort of tap into. I think it, it really kind of resonates with people on quite an instinctive basis. You know, I think people expect if you create some pollution you should be um you know dealt with um cleaning it up or, or paying for the costs of doing so um so i think that's where the uk should be really kind of looking to to take a charge on um on uh, carbon pricing and um, carbon taxes and things like that um and 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 yeah so i think i mean sort of coming back i said talking about the budget earlier i think that was kind of a real missed opportunity to, to kind of um you know apply carbon taxes to, to other things in the economy and because and they're very kind of um, well, pretty much only levied on electricity and a few other things at the moment. But but we could really kind of have a more comprehensive carbon tax, I think, would be a, a good thing to do. Um, and I was yeah really disappointed that the Chancellor didn't do that because we did have maybe kind of a week or two of rumours. And I guess that serves me right for believing them that um, the Treasury was going to sort of, yeah, 
take take the lead on this. Um, and who knows, there, there was kind of a very brief line in the Treasury, uh, in the budget document itself, which, um, you know, hinted at the possibility that carbon pricing could be coming later down the line. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yeah, so things like that, I think will be, um, well, and will be kind of really radically transformative for the UK if it really wants to kind of get a grip on um, decarbonising. There's still lots of sections of the UK economy which haven't decarbonised at all really since 1990 or have done, um, you know, a few percent transport, for instance, I think down about 20 percent. Um, and that's not good enough. And, and we need to kind of expedite progress on that. And I think carbon taxes, we've seen how powerful they can be, um, not just around the world in other countries, but in the UK itself on the sectors that we apply them to. So why are we not applying to them, them more? Um, so I think, yeah, if, if the Treasury could kind of, yeah, take take a lead on that, then that would be great and would absolutely help us to get to net zero um, faster, more effectively and cheaper. Uh, I, I have a worry we might end up going down the uh, route of discussing the carbon tax, which uh, is, is uh, certainly a uh, rabbit hole. Um, but on that note, I'd like to turn to um, innovation. So if the UK is to become a global leader in environmentalism and become, hang on, let me try that again. If the UK is to become a global leader in environmentalism, championing innovation will be a crucial step. Thus far, regulation has been the preferred mode of action for governments to incentivize businesses towards eco-innovation. What market-based solutions should the UK adopt to incentivize eco-innovation by businesses? Are there areas where interference by the state has stifled eco-innovation from occurring thus far? Eamon, what are your thoughts? So, I mean, we just said that we'll park carbon taxes. Um, so I would have said, said them, but um, let's kind of leave them behind for the moment, at least. Um, I think there are, there are definitely lots of good areas where the UK can, um, can look to increase innovation um, in, in environmental goods and services. Um, and a lot of kind of deregulatory uh, matters, particularly around those um, sectors where uh, innovation was kind of held back um, whilst we were members of the European Union. So looking at um, kind of food innovation, um, kind of one of those areas where almost conveniently gets left out a lot of the time in environmental debates is around um, exactly kind of how we grow our food. So whether that's using genetic modification or genetic editing latterly, um, which which could be um, incredible in terms of boosting yields and things like that. Um, but was, I mean, by, all, by and large, kind of banned in the EU for, for various different reasons, not least kind of the rent-seeking agricultural sector, which has sought to, you know, stifle any sort of innovation, really, um, since, well, since kind of um, any sort of European Union or its uh, pre predecessors. Um, have existed, so I think things in that could be could be very interesting. Um, another thing, just to mention, is of course the importance of R and D funding, and this um, is really kind of one of the the best things I think the current government has has done, or, or at least since kind of Boris Johnson has become prime minister um, and sort of championed by his former advisor Dominic Cummings, was to obviously get the get the UK spending in R and D up to at least OECD levels. Um, I think, yeah, it, it really doesn't get the attention that it deserves and, and is critically important if we are going to be um, developing those solutions that we need um, so that we can live more sustainably and, and develop exactly those technologies necessary to allow people to to kind of go about their lives as normal, but, but doing so at less of a cost to the environment. 
Um, so yeah, I think there's certainly lots of deregulation that that could be done. And um, I'm not normally one of those people who kind of shakes their fist constantly at regulatory um, barriers and things. I think often, well, sometimes there are there are good reasons for regulation, of course. Um, but I think certainly there are areas in agricultural sector and and other things where um, you know it seems like there's completely common sense ways to deregulate um and, and yeah the environment will benefit as a result and andrew yeah so i mean i think the government could uh, look at ways to encourage consumers to participate more in carbon offsetting to deal with uh, with environmental outcomes right from I mean, the Committee on Climate Change's uh, report indicated that, you know, 70 percent of the emissions that we're dealing with currently come from consumption of carbon rather than production, for instance. Um, so where you can have nudging by the government through regulations to encourage consumers to not only consume less, I mean, and I do think that the carbon carbon taxes play an important will play an important role in this, um, but where you can get consumers to consume less goods that are carbon intensive, um, travel less, adapt their, their way of life, um, and utilize carbon offsetting to deal with the, um, the, the emissions that can't be reduced completely. Um, I think those are the, the really big areas for the government moving forward in terms of uh, in terms of kind of guiding the market in the right direction, because you know we can deal with the industrial sources, we can deal with uh, the sort of public government sources of emissions, but transforming the way that consumers approach um, their 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 habits and their sort of standards of living, unfortunately, right, um, are are really key to to uh, addressing the uh, the issue. Certainly, I mean, there's incentivizing behaviours, but rather than going down the Greta Thunberg approach of everyone stopping eating meat and, you know, kind of regressing 500 years or anything like that. Um, I'd like to thank you both for your time today. This has been a really interesting conversation. Andrew, would you like to start with your concluding remarks and where we could find out more about your work? Yeah, so um, my concluding remarks on, on these topics is that basically the UK has um, taken you know, massive steps forward over the past 10 years on in environment and, and climate leadership. It has a massive opportunity to seize and uh, cop. Um, it can drive change in a number of areas, particularly in climate finance and on um, on transformation of infrastructure, etc. Um, but we we need to see credible action leading up to that point in time to really confirm that the UK is uh, going to to be the kind of transformative power that it can be in the world and does not simply use the the COP and other events this year to uh, to encourage other governments to adopt and other market actors right to adopt the kind of rhetoric that uh, you know results in a sort of greenwashing of the approach that we're taking presently. Um, but the research that I'm doing currently focuses on UK export finance. You can find it uh, bright blue. I'm on Twitter as uh, hash, uh, lemming underscore Andrew. Um, yeah. And Eamon. Yeah, thanks, Luke. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, I kind of echo a lot of what Andrew said. I think um, obviously this year is really kind of important um, in the environmental space, we've obviously got COP26. We've also got um, 15th, oh, COP15 for the Biodiversity Conference in, in China, 
um, which you know gets neglected, I think, by by the press, um, but will be you know incredibly important in its own right. Um, also, kind of just generally, as as the world hopefully rebounds from from the corona the worst of the coronavirus, um, there's obviously a, a real kind of moment for for us to think you know about doing things differently, and and I think there's there is quite fertile ground for um, you know interesting and innovative policies to come forward, um, which hopefully come to the benefit of the environment and, and, and you know, follow policy people like us are hopefully going to be you know, at the forefront of suggesting some of those um, to that extent or, or to that end. Um, if you want to kind of find out more about the re research we're doing at the CPS, you can go to our website. Um, we're on Twitter at CPS Think Tank. I'm at Eamon Ives. Um, so no difficulty finding me there. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it's going to be a, going to be an important year and, and Hopefully, though, it can be a chance to get some really good um, you know, wins for, for the environment and free markets um, and, and sort of, yeah, right of centre politics. If you'd like to learn more of the British Conservation Alliance's work, please follow us online at www.bca.eco or on the Twitter handle at BCA underscore eco. Thank you very much both once again for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.